This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. At SoundsTrue.com, you can find hundreds of downloadable audio learning programs, plus books, music, videos, and online courses and events. At SoundsTrue.com, we think of ourselves as a trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today, my guest is Jacqueline Freeman. Jacqueline Freeman is a biodynamic farmer and natural beekeeper who appeared in the award-winning documentary Queen of the Sun. She speaks internationally on organic beekeeping, women in agriculture, permaculture, and building an expansive relationship with nature. With Sounds True, Jacqueline has written a new book called Song of Increase, listening to the wisdom of honeybees for kinder beekeeping and a better world, in which she illuminates the unity consciousness that guides every action in the colony and how this profound awareness can influence the way we see both the natural world and ourselves. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Jacqueline and I spoke about her ability to communicate with bees and some of the messages she's received. We also talked about the challenges bees face in our world today and the importance of healthy bees for a healthy ecosystem. We also talked about what it means to be bee-centric instead of human-centric in our approach to relating with bees, particularly when it comes to harvesting honey or making bee-based products. And finally, we talked about the purpose of a bee's life from the bee's perspective. Here's my conversation with Jacqueline Freeman. Jacqueline, to begin with, I'd love to know how you first became a beekeeper, how your relationship with the bees first developed. That's how I became enamored of bees. <laughs> well, my husband and I bought a farm in the North Pacific Northwest about 15 years ago, and uh, we weren't farmers. We're both from small towns in New England. We just wanted to live in a rural place with a lot of land around us because that's what we were used to. That's what we grew up in. And we are the second owners of this farm that's 100 years old. So that was kind of nice. And, you know, I, I didn't really start out thinking I was going to have anything to do with farming, you know, other than having my own backyard garden. That was about it. Uh, and then in that first year we were here, my neighbor down the street who grows heirloom hens, chickens, she came up one time and she said, uh, you know, you guys have a farm. You really ought to have chickens. And so she gifted us with a half dozen hens. And that was, wow, that was kind of nice. Yeah, I liked that too. And then a little bit later, one of my other girlfriends down who lived down in Portland in town said a friend was selling her land um, or was buying some land. I'm, I'm not quite sure on the details on that. A friend was doing something with some land, and there were bees that had lived out in the woods for a long time, and the new owners didn't want the bees there. So she asked if I would like to take them. And actually, it was kind of a big invitation. She said, you have a farm. You should have bees. <laughs> and I thought, yeah, she's right, just like with the chickens. I should have bees, too. So we took a beehive in, and um, 
that was my very first hive, and I knew absolutely nothing about them. My brother had kept bees for a few years, a few years earlier, and but I didn't live anywhere near him. And you know, once I went to his house and saw his bees, but that wasn't any big deal for me. I didn't know anything. Mm-hmm. And then, how did your relationship with the bees develop from that point? Well, I started out being kind of afraid of them. You know, I I didn't know anything about them. I thought they were like, you know, the cartoon pictures of big cyclones of bees coming to sting. And and of course, you know, having been uh, seen things in the media um, about how scary bees could be, I kind of thought that was how they were. So I got a bee suit, you know, one of those ones that look like you're in a hazmat suit. And uh, got all taped up, dressed up, wore my knee-high boots with my pants tucked in with duct tape around the top of them just in case a bee got in there and, you know, the big bee hat and the gloves. And really, I looked like I was ready to go to Mars. And I, you know, marched out to see the bees. And when I went down to sit with them, it was really interesting. They had no interest in me whatsoever. (laughs) And I could, I had a chair and I would sit right up next to the beehive uh, a distance at first, but then I got braver, braver, and got up close to them and started watching them. And and I just noticed they were very docile. They were very sweet. They were very uh, friendly. And I don't mean like all over me friendly. I mean just in this acceptance way. They just seemed to say, you know, there she is, and here we are. And it was just the sweetest feeling. And I noticed the more and more and more that I would go I went down every day for a few hours a day. Every time I did that, I felt closer to them and I noticed that my thinking changed that it was like going into this deep meditation where I wasn't thinking about anything else. I wasn't thinking about going to an appointment or calling somebody or getting the mail or, you know, anything other than being present with the bees. And that wasn't by intention, that was just the effect that they had on me. And eventually I, you know, kind of piece by piece got rid of my big old bee suit. And eventually, over a long period of time, I got to the part where, you know, I don't even wear a bee suit or protective equipment. I rarely wear it. Um, And, uh, you know, the bees just became very, very welcoming to me. I noticed the first time that I was down there, and by this time I didn't have gloves on anymore and things like that, I put my hand out to just see if a bee would climb up on my finger. And this little bee climbed up, and, and she just looked straight at me, her, her little tiny face. I could see her eyes looking straight at me. And that just changed everything. It was amazing. I, I just felt like I'm now a part of bee life. It was wonderful, wonderful feeling. It's like my heart opened up to these little beings. Now, it's interesting that your breakthrough was through being, and you must hear mm-hmm. a lot of bee puns, and I'm wondering, you know, if that drives you crazy, all the bee puns. I, I think it's a deliberate part of the language. You know, sometimes when I read, um, you know, I write, so sometimes I go look up archaic words, and when I spoke with the bees, sometimes they would use archaic words. I'd have to go look them up to see what the fullness of the meaning was. And so many times I find with words, there's some core construct in the middle of that word that has allowed it to evolve into this much bigger presence. So, yeah, I think the words uh, being and bees... (laughs) They're kind of primary to our our entire perception of consciousness. 
Now, you said something interesting when you talk with the bees. And so I know from your book, Song of Increase, listening to the wisdom of honeybees, that you listen and talk. You're a bee communicator, if you will. (laughs) And I find that every bit as funny as as probably you do. I when I first started with bees first of all I went off to bee school and because that how else do you learn about bees you go to bee school and I went to a conventional bee school and they were doing things where I was thinking right off the bat oh no I can't do that oh no I'll never do that oh no that's not for me and I I I knew nothing about bees but I knew that I wasn't going to do a lot of the things we were being taught so um what I ended up doing was I'd come home and I'd say, look, I want to take really good care of all of you, but there are no books. This is, you know, 14 years ago, I think. There were no books on this kind of care for bees that I wanted to do. Uh, There was very little, actually. It was a lot of how you manage bees, but that was never my intention. And every day when I would go and see my bees or do something with my bees, I, I would say this this little thing to him, I would say, you know, I am willing to do just about anything to provide you with the best life that you can possibly have. I just don't know what to do. So it'd be really nice if you could share some wisdom with me. And it's funny, in, in the quiet way, I mean, I, I don't think I actually put that into a verbal sentence, but it was certainly a sentence in my head. And it was something I said in earnest for probably six years. And then one morning they answered. <laughs> I was laying in bed, and I had this habit of, uh, kind of, I guess you could call it a practice, although it seems so small. I would wake up, and I'd lay in bed, and I'd be in that kind of place where you're not quite fully awake, but you're, not, you're no longer asleep. And I would just do a small meditation, just really clearing my mind and opening my heart and blessing everyone who was on the land. And that was my, my little ritual of the morning. And then one morning, I just got this information. It kind of poured in, and I grabbed my pen and paper next to the bed and and started writing down what they said. And it was information about the bees that I had never heard anywhere before. And yet when I was listening to it and reading it, I was thinking, this really, it's true. This is what they're saying. It has this ring of truth to it. And the more I wrote, the more I learned. They, it happened you know, a few mornings later and a few mornings later, and it, eventually I had enough to write a book. I could tell I had enough to, uh, to share with people. It went on for years. It still does. Um, less so now because I've written the book, and you know, now it's sort of more, if I have a particular thing I want to know something about, I'll, I'll put it out there to them. They're, they're brilliant little beings. So much of the information that I learned from them, you know, it really stretched my mind. I, I sometimes had to go look things up. <laughs> uh, you know, I want to I want to go into this a little bit because here you could say some kind of automatic writing opened up in you. And I mean, how did you know this is the bees talking and not, you know, this is just my imagination or other? I mean, how did you trust what you were receiving? Well, there were solutions to issues and problems in bee management that are ongoing ones. You know, the bees are, overall, hardly anybody doesn't know that bees are having a hard time now. So that's a that's a big discussion. And at the time I became a beekeeper, that wasn't such a big discussion. It, that sort of evolved really quickly after that. 
But in there, it, there were answers to questions that I didn't know, and they were so accurate. And since then, I've even, a few of the things that are in the book, uh, it, even in the past year, I think there's been about three times when they've come out with a study <laughs> that proved something that the bees told me. I thought, how curious, how amazingly funny and, and uh, insightful of them. They speak in a language, too, that's a, a bit different than how I think or talk, and I found that quite interesting. And they know words that I didn't know. There, there's even a part where they talk about quantum physics. Now, Tammy, I, I was not <laughs> big on this topic. <laughs> um, so I really did have to go Google a few phrases to even see what in the world are they telling me here. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I wrote it, all that stuff down and looked it up and went, hmm, yeah, you know what, that really works. So is your understanding that this breakthrough occurred, your B communication breakthrough, because of your sincerity, because of the connection? Like, how do you attribute it? A lot of people, I think, want to have communication with other species, et cetera, and, you know, they never get a breakthrough. How did this happen for you? What's your view of that? Well, I'm so glad you asked me that, because people don't really ask me that very often. They just sort of assume that's what I do, and that's it. But I have as many questions about it as, as anyone. I think that it's actually two things. One of them is that I was earnest in my question, and I asked it repeatedly. And the second part is, I wasn't attached to anything happening out of it. So I didn't have a, and someday the bees will tell me this and I'll know the answer. That was never part of my thoughts. It was just, tell me how I can help you. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense to me. Your sincerity, your heartfulness, really, your open-heartedness. Mm-hmm. Now, you mentioned that many people are aware now that bees are having a difficult time in our world today. And I'm wondering if you can tell me a little bit about that for people who are not educated on the challenges that bees face today, and then also what you learned from the bees about how to cope with the challenges and changes in agricultural processes, that kind of thing. That's a great big question. Okay, I'll jump right in. Well, the first thing is, and it's so obvious, when did it start being okay to put poisons on our food? You know, that's just the silliest idea in the world. Anybody who who even just looks at that one sentence, when did it become okay to put poisons on our food? Why would that ever be a correct action in the world? So the poisons in the environment are, are certainly the first step. You know, and I have lost hives because... Somebody sprayed a fruit tree a mile away from me, and my bees were on it that day because the blossoms were out. You know, so many of the poisons that are used in our environment, they're out there. They're deadly poison to all kinds of life, lives and life matter. Um, But those things are allowed out there because they put directions on the side that tell you how to use it properly. And I remember reading something somewhere that said 96% of the people who buy something that has directions on the side of it never read them. So if they had, they would know that this deadly poison to bees should never be sprayed when the flowers are out. It's supposed to be sprayed during the bud time. Um, I mean, I think the whole concept is silly because it's poison, but if you spray poison on your flowers and 
and they're in bloom, then certainly bees are going to be attracted to them and they're going to carry home the poison. What happens is you can take a hive that's got, let's say a typical hive is about 50,000 bees. If 100 bees get into that poison, they'll bring it home. And then the poison, it's itchy, it hurts, it burns. They actually communicate over to the bee next to them. They'll land on the landing board and go, ah, I've got something on me, help me. And the next bee will come and help. And then she's got it on her, and the next bee will come and help. They said if 100 bees in your hive of 50,000 come home with something toxic on them, within 24 hours, every single bee will have touched another bee, and the whole hive goes down. And that's exactly been my experience. Three times I've lost hives to someone putting out something toxic that my bees got into. And since bees fly and forage up to two miles away from where their hive is, you know, I haven't even got a clue what neighbor did that. You know, who in my two-mile radius sprayed something Saturday morning? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. How do I... And so, you know, my role there is education. Every time I speak with people, I say, you have to stop using poisons. And as a farmer, I can even say something more profound on that. <laughs> the the more important thing is, if you're spraying poisons, it's because the plant itself is weak. And the plant is weak because, this is so logical, there's not enough nutrition in the soil. If you make your soil stronger, your plants won't be as weak and they won't attract pests, they won't get viruses, they won't get infections, they, they won't be the kind of thing that uh, has problems in the first place. So isn't that, I mean, that's such a simple concept. And how is the death of the bees something that is a loss for all of us and for the health of our ecosystem? How do we all suffer when the bees are suffering? Oh my gosh, in so many ways. And it seems like, you know, I, I think one of the things I want to mention first is, is about people's perception of bees as being servants to human needs. We like honey. So uh, it's a question that so many people ask me. Oh, you have bees? You must get a lot of honey, or you know, how much honey do you get? I think I take very little honey from my hives. I take it when there's a superabundance. Other than that, I don't take it. Because I'm not in a relationship where it's this animal is like a, you know, its worth is gauged by how much of something it produces for me. Um, and pollination, you know, pollination happens. The bees don't pollinate the tomatoes because they're your tomatoes. The bees pollinate because they're in this beautiful mystery dance with all of the plant life in, in the world. And that's, that's what they're doing. The pollination just happens to make the fruit more abundant. Therefore, we humans benefit from it. But it isn't that they're workers to make our world better. They're doing that on their own. <laughs> Yeah, and when bees die from pesticides, what is the cycle that happens, the negative cycle that creates suffering for the health of all of us? Oh, my God, so much, so much. Um, we lose their song, you know, and I think that's a bigger thing than, than all of what we think of for bees um, when they can, let me read you something that's out of what they've spoken to me. Sure. Is that all right? Yes, please. Here's what, when I asked him something about sound, I, I was actually interested in that 
sensation I get when I'm around them, when I listen to their song, that mmm that's going on, there's something in me that feels just so fulfilled, and I, I just feel enriched by being immersed in that sound. And so one morning they spoke with me about sound. They said, and this is their words, our inner landscape is sound. We move between narrow paths and lanes and know the way by the resonance of sound as the waves move onto and off of every surface in the hive. Besides the information about the hive's activities moment to moment, the sound itself plays through the hive and describes the curves and contours of the internal shape of the hive. We see inside the hive by the shape of the sound, which is one more aspect of unity. In all our activities, we live inside the sound. Sound is integral in our unity. Sound is the emanation of our vibration. Each hive has a unique sound signature that declares its health and vital force. The emanation of the sound reinforces the hive's state of health. It is important as our warmth and our scent to the hive. Each bee individually has a sound declaring its health. In harmony together, we set up a wave of sound that speaks in a song of hive health. The overlapping sounds harmonize on different frequencies that speak to each of the bee's organs. The song can raise or lower the vibration of vitality, enhancing or decreasing hive health. Like a song of rapture, it can raise, it can raise the spiritual frequency of the hive. Or like an observation or complaint of ill health, it can wear down the bee's vibration. And they go on. They speak much more. But isn't that amazing, the, the, just this sound that you hear? And who would think that it has such profound properties? Now, from the books that you put out from Sounds True, I mean, we are certainly in there rooting for that. We, so many of the, the uh, authors that you, that you work with have said brilliant things about stuff like that. And this is the bee's contribution to it. Of course, I can uh, appreciate the beauty of the song, and I love the fact that you call the bees sounds songs, and you know you call your book "Song of Increase." And let's just take a moment there, and then I'll circle back to my point. Why do you call the book "Song of Increase"? The song of increase is the, is the time when the bees are so amazingly abundant in everything they do. And that's their words for it. They, they call everything uh, the different tone sounds, uh, songs. Um, when a hive is building up in the spring, they've come out of their winter, the blossoms are just starting, there's a few different things that happen. One of them is, first of all, there's more food coming in. And more food means that the queen can start laying more eggs because there's more food available to feed the babies. And in that process, there's more nectar being brought in, so there's more food for the bees. And then the queen is going full out, laying as many eggs as she possibly can, and she's just filling the hive. So you've got this brood chamber, the nursery, with all the babies in it. And then you've got the next layer out, which is this like golden sun uh, rays around the nursery that's filled with fermented pollen that they feed the babies. And then all the rest of the combs are the honey the nectar that becomes honeycomb. In a hive, there's a point where everything is just rocking full of abundance, and that's the time when the bees are absolute at their peak happiness. They know that every single thing in their perception is going right in the direction it's supposed to go, and that's what they start singing, this, this incredible song called the, sound, uh, the Song of, of Increase. 
and it's just a song of uh, abundance. It's a declaration that every single thing is going toward the fullest expression of their being. It's just wonderful. And you can hear it when you're around a hive that's in the midst of this song. It's just, I mean, it will just make you laugh. It'll, it makes you smile. You can just feel like, oh, what a wonderful world we live in. <laughs> so I can understand how someone like you who is a deep, I mean, you're even more than a bee lover. You're, you're devoted to the bees and to the beauty and the wisdom they've brought into your life would sorely miss the song of increase and the songs of the bees. But what I'm imagining is people who are working in the agriculture business and who are using pesticides, and if they say, you know, oh, the worst thing that's going to happen is we're going to lose the songs of the bees, I can live with that, okay. Make a recording of the songs of the bees and you can play it and make yourself happy. I mean, but it seems to me that there's a lot more we would lose. And in terms of the ecological balance in the world, and that's what I'm wondering if you could touch on as well, that as bees are suffering and dying, what does that mean for our future food production? Well, you know, one of the statistics is about two-thirds of our food has to be pollinated by somebody, and pollinators are the ones who do it. So, you know, on a very practical level, humans would lose about two-thirds of the food that we eat, the fruits and vegetables and herbs and everything else that they're party to. But I think it's far, far bigger than that. You know, when we lose bees, it's because it's the canary in the coal mine. You know, it's because there's something so much bigger going on, so much of a uh, a fuller defeat going on in our whole system, not just our agricultural system, but the whole system of the world. And we, as as people who care for bees, one of the ways we've gone off in a funny direction is we've taken on managing bees like their livestock. And, you know, I mean, look at this throughout all of agriculture. Instead of growing fruits and vegetables, we're we're managing this stuff with tractors run by GPS. You know, no human touches it, um, that touches the food. It, it loses something of the relationship that is, I think, primary in this whole world. When we are not in connection with nature around us, it's, it's more than something small that's lost. It's, it's something we lose something in our hearts and souls. We separate ourselves you know, and, and the bees said something one time. There's a habit in, in human management of bees, conventional is what call it, conventional management of bees, where you can take honey away, and then if you take too much honey, then you feed back sugar water. And I'm sure there are people who are listening who are just going, what? <laughs> Why would you take away honey and feed sugar? Well, the bees need to have something. So taking the honey away, you've got to give them something back. Sugar, water, well, it'll give them a burst of energy, much like a candy bar would. But, of course, anybody in their sane mind knows that's not really good nutrition. And what happens is that's uh, one way that you can weaken bees. You feed them food that isn't nutritious. When, um, when we get into this, now, that's on a very practical level. Feed any animal food that's not nutritious, and you'll incite illness. You'll start some kind of degrading process happening in their vitality. But more than that, there's something else. And, and the bees said something about um, 
about the honey itself. They said that it was, um, let me see, I think I've got that. Let me see if I can find it in my book here. Maybe, maybe not. Nope. I guess I'm going to have to remember this from memory. Um, anyway, the bees were talking about uh, sugar water, and I, I had asked, actually asked them a question about that, saying, well, what's the deal on sugar water? And they said, well, it's not good for us, and it, it makes our, our tummies hurt, um, and it makes our singing kind of weak and tinny. But they said more important than all of that is sugar isn't food that's made with prayer. Honey is food that's made with prayer. And I felt like, what a profound statement. You know, I'm, my farm is biodynamic. We work with the vital force of the land. We work with all the spiritual entities that are, that are here and deeply loving of the land and this space that we're on. When we work with the land, there's a, there's a connection made. So when I'm planting seeds in the ground, I may sing to them, I may talk with them, I invite them to take root in this land and know that they're loved and, and cared for and, and that there's a, a deep resonance in the, that connection between us. I'm the gardener, but I'm also the caretaker of all the soil, and, and I'm doing everything I can to allow all the processes to happen simultaneously so that everybody's happy and healthy. In doing that, I engage with the food. I engage with the things that I eat. And I feel like anything that I eat that comes off my farm that I've been intimately involved with, that just brings health. So, Jacqueline, you mentioned that you work with all of the spiritual energies uh-huh. that are a part of the land. Tell me what you meant by that. Well, on our land, my husband and I are both quite sensitive to that. And when we first moved here, we felt, wow, there's some presence on this land that just makes my heart sing. And we've actually come to learn what that is. Fifteen years on the land, the land will teach you. So we work with that. Um, if I am walking along, sometimes it's something as simple as I'm walking somewhere on the farm and I, I just get this sense like, that part of the garden over there really needs water. You know, sometimes it's just a simple request. Other times, it's that we put something here. Um, one time I was walking across the farm, and I was walking down below, and I just got this sense every time I walked by there, I it felt like I could feel and hear the sound of water spirits. And after a few days of it, I said, you know, we should build a little pond here. And so we did. We I got together my interns and apprentices, and we dug out of uh big hole and we made a little pond there and you know within two three days every time I walked by there then I could practically hear out loud um, how joyful it made all of the energies that were in that area and then later we found out that underneath there about 26 feet down before we lived here there had been a well in that area and that well had been filled in and When there were water spirits, um, the water spirits continue to live there even if something a hole gets filled in, in in the water. So I felt like I was hearing that and then responding to it. You know, there was there should be water here, and that was what I kept hearing. There should be water here, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. so we put water there, and then wow, what a surprise! 
so yeah, things like that happen. Now I want to I want to circle back because you were talking about how you're bee-centric, not human-centric in your relationship with the bees and how you don't even take honey from your bees unless there's an extra amount being produced. And I'm curious what you think about all of the various businesses that have grown up around bees, whether it's beeswax candles or various kinds of face creams, let alone honey production. And what do you think is the respectful way is there a respectful way to work with bee-made products? Yes, I do believe that there is. And we have to be aware of how much are we taking of things. Um, they are so generous. They, they do make extra. You know, and there, there are certain hives. Sometimes I'll go to look and say, is this a hive I can collect some honey from this, this year? And I look in and go, hmm, no, doesn't look like there's enough there. There's plenty, but there's not enough extra for me. Another time, I won't even get to open the hive. I'll just stand next to it and go, mm, nope, doesn't feel right either. And then I'll be walking by another one that's going, hey, over here, we've got extra. And I open it up, and sure enough, they do. <laughs> but with all of that, you know, when I take out the combs to process them to take the honey out, then there's there's leftover wax in that. So I try to be respectful to use every bit of anything that I do take. And that would be the stuff you want to make some lip balm, sure. You can use the wax in that, uh, um, any of those things. I don't like to support things like there's an industry built up around royal jelly, which is the stuff that's given to the queen. Um, Baby queens float in it. And, um, you know, it's full of hormones and it can do some amazing things, but I've chosen not to buy things that have royal jelly in them because the process of acquiring that royal jelly means you get a whole bunch of baby queen eggs and then you kill the queens, the little queens, and take the um, the royal jelly that they've been floating in. So oh, that just doesn't feel right to me. You know, there's a death process in there, so that just can't be right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's helpful. You're listening to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. We welcome you to learn more about our collection of more than a thousand learning programs and receive three free gifts just for visiting us. Go to soundstrue.com backslash free. That's soundstrue.com backslash free. And now back to Insights at the Edge. Now, I want to talk with you, Jacqueline, about what may be the most important part of our conversation for me, which is as a bee communicator, you've learned things about the way bees live that have profoundly affected how you live. And I'd be curious to know what the main things are that you've learned from bees about their life that have changed the way you approach living your life? Oh, I love that question. Well, the first one is the perception of how bees understand themselves. They speak about being a unity. And and actually, this is how they speak. We wake up to the understanding that we are all one, 
all the time. Human beings exist connected each to each, but believe that they are not. Honeybees dwell in the full realization of that connection and have done so for eons. The unity we embody is a reflection of the kingdom-wide unity that dwells in us all. This is the gift we bring, complete sacred unity in body and spirit. To be in the presence of spirit, to simply sit and be in such presence, offers the opportunity to be transformed by it. This we offer you. Come sit. Be with us. Drink in the unity as you would fresh rain. We offer our gift with great joy and love. So they have this common consciousness, which is that every bee is in connection with each other, and they recognize that. You know, there are many times in in the stuff that I have in the book where they've told me about the processes where we're in you see their connection. For example, when, they, when they're in the hive, they communicate all throughout the whole hive. Uh, when they go to find, and every bee knows what's going on throughout the hive. There's this vibration, there's this sound, there's, but there's also this inner unity. One time, a friend of mine, Mikhail, um, uh, asked me, he said, Mikhail Teeley, and he works with bees in this wonderfully apocentric way. He said, you know, I've never believed this thing about calling bee, the female bees worker bees. They're the ones that do a lot of the work in the hive. And we named them, as humans, we named them workers. And he said, it just doesn't sound right to me that, you know, what do the bees call the females in the hive? And so I, I went to them with a question. And I, I quite often I never went with a question. I, I just would take what information they gave me. But sometimes I would bring a question. And the first time I asked the question, what do you call the female bees? They didn't explain anything about that to me. They told me something about sound. And I wrote it down and thought, well, that was interesting anyway. And the next day I said again, what do you call the female bees? And they told me something else again, but it wasn't the answer to this question. And I thought to myself, well, I guess they're really not interested in telling me what that is. Maybe they don't have a different name for him. And then the third day I went back without asking the question, and they told me what they call the bees. What happened was I needed to understand the first two lessons before I could understand the answer. <laughs> and the answer was they spoke to me about the sound of ohm. And they said, as humans, we learn, we, we come out into the world and we, we think we're individuals. And we make the sound of ohm, you know, where it's the whole wide world, the O part of the sound. And then we bring the sound inside of us to come into ourselves and from the outer world to the inner world. And they said, the female bees, we call them the opposite of the sound of ohm because we come into the world as one. And then as the bees grow and mature, they go out to the for to forage in the, in the fields and they become individuated, but at the same time, they've always got that sound inside of them that is the sound of one, the sound of oneness. So their name is actually an ohm sung in reverse, and they said, but you can also call them maidens. <laughs> uh-huh. And in terms of understanding this unity and then this movement of the bees that you just described going from the inside out instead of the outside in. How have had these ideas 
changed the way you approach your life? Oh, gosh. Well, everything that I, I can't help but do that every day. Look at, and how would the bees do that? <laughs> and there's certain things I see, this, these harmonies that go on that are available to us out here in human lives that if, if we ask, we can have. For example, when bees build the comb, they, they build this, this um, comb out of wax, and they do this really interesting thing where if you opened up a hive when they were building their free comb that just hangs down from a bar, you'd see a whole bunch of bees doing this curious acrobatic thing where one bee is holding on to the, the leg of the bee above it, and then there's a bee below that that's holding on to her leg with her upper arm. It's just, it just looks like this funny, acrobatic, strange thing. What they're actually doing is they're measuring and they're using their bodies to pick where each each thing um, each cell is going to go. So when they're doing this, they um, it's actually a construction that's taking place in their common mind. So this bee on row three, four spaces in, she's not going to be there when that piece of wax gets laid down to describe that cell that's being built there. She's just the template. She's part of the template that enters into all the bees who will then build that comb. I mean, what an incredible concept that is anyway. And then with that, they just simply go and construct the comb as as their bodies have laid out the measurement prior to them ever putting a piece of wax down. So I think of that, and I, I watch the bees while they put together this length of comb that's, you know, maybe 12 inches, 15 inches wide, and then another 10 inches deep, and they build it, and they'll start building it from the, the outsides to the inside. And when they get to the very middle, Tammy, it meets. It just meets perfectly. <laughs> I mean, I find that baffling and unbelievably <laughs> amazing. And I think about my husband and I, we work really well together. We're, you know, we've been together 20 plus years. We do tasks really well together. But if he started building a wall on the left side and I started on the right side, it probably would not meet precisely in the middle the way that the bees can do that. And what it makes me think of is this this way that humans work in the world. You know, in my marriage, I think of 50-50. I think of if he does dishes half the time, then I'm supposed to do dishes half the time. And, you know, this is arrangement that you have. And I always thought that was like the best you could possibly get. But I realized when I watched the bees that they act very differently. If a bee lands on the landing board and she's got something itching her, another bee will run right over and just drop what she's doing and run right over and help and handle it and fix it and, and then go right back to their task. And I've seen them do things like this. Like I was in a hive one time and I, oh, I made a mistake and I dropped a honeycomb. I made a mess in the bottom of that hive and I felt terrible about it, but I watched what the bees did. They stopped what they were doing and they all ran over and they cleaned it up and they fixed it. They didn't yell at anybody. They didn't make me feel bad. Um, They just fixed it. And I realized that their way of doing things is not 50-50 or 1% of 100 or anything, it's 100%. At all times, every bee is willing to do exactly what it takes to make things right. 
that's awesome. In that sense, being a superorganism, if you will, and I've heard bees referred to in that way in the foreword to your book by Susan Chernock McElroy, she uses mm-hmm. that phrase superorganism. So kind of what it might be like as humans if we lived more like we were part of a human superorganism, that collaborative, oh, yeah. that connected. Yes, and not out for ourselves all the time, that if we could actually give 100%. I have a hard time even conceptualizing what that would be like, but I have integrated that into my marriage at times. <laughs> not perfect, so I'm not great at it all the time. But I think, you know, if I wash the dishes six times in a row, um, you know, my husband will probably do the things that I'm not really keen on doing. I really don't like putting the gas in the car, and I don't like the way it makes my hand smell like gas afterwards. So he just takes that thing over, you know, or he puts out the trash, and, you know, and I I like to cook more than he does, so he'll handle dishes more than I do. But it comes to be a thing where there isn't an assignment of tasks. There's just an automatic flowing that happens that says, yeah, this is good relationship. This is what you do when you're in good relationship. You do 100%, 100% of the time. Mm-hmm. Now, you began by talking to us, Jacqueline, about wearing this, you know, astronaut's suit, if you will, so you wouldn't get stung by the bees when you first started and slowly peeling off all of those clothes and then just going in and having your hands and, and your body exposed and feeling trusting. Have you ever suffered from a serious amount of bee bites in your experience being a beekeeper? Yes. <laughs> One time. And I learned a lesson from that. I was uh, I had taken some honey the day before. And when I got it back down to the house, I had a few bars and some of it wasn't capped honey. It was still nectar, which isn't fully processed to being dehydrated nectar, which is honey. Um, it will ferment if you try to keep it. So I thought, oh, I'll just go return the, these two bars to that hive when I go back up. And the next morning I... Um, I brought it back up, and I was with my friend Susan, and I said to her, I put it back, no problem, and then I said, you know, this hive next to them, I've been meaning to look in on them in a while, and I think I'll I'll just lift up the lid and have a, have a look in here. And it was so funny because I said to her, now normally we don't wear bee equipment, and I said, it's funny, my intuition just says I should put on my bee hat. So I put on my bee hat. I didn't put on my whole bee suit or anything, just put the hat on. And I opened up the hive, and whoa, like 80 bees came flying out of there. And I did get about, oh, 14 stings, 12 or 14 stings on my hands. Um, so glad I put, put the hat on. And I, I, you, what you do when bees are stinging like that, they were obviously very upset about something, is you back up really fast. Um, you know, you don't have to run away, but I just back up. And usually if you get 10 feet away, they're fine. And I backed up, and in... In the, I had a little tree nearby, one of my fruit trees, and you can do what bears do. Bears, when they're getting stung by bees, will go underneath the tree and lift their arms up, and they spin around in the branches, and the branches confuse the bees, and then the, bee, the bear walks out the other side. So I sort of did something like that. But then I came back and I said, what in the world caused that? I've never had that experience before, never had it since. And then Susan said, do you think it was because of 4th of July the night before? (laughs) 
And I live in Washington State where fireworks are legal. And even though I live in a rural area, everybody sets off their fireworks on Fourth of July night. So what happened was that night, Joseph and I were up in the field doing our cow chores. And I said, boy, every time one of those fireworks goes out, goes off, you can actually feel the ground shaking from it. And my bees, they're, they're beings of vibration. So all of these fireworks all night long going boom, 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 shaking the hive. And then I come along innocently the next morning and, you know, disrupt the hive by taking the lid off. I was the first thing they could point a finger at and say, maybe it's her. <laughs> so that was a good lesson. It was note to self, don't open any hives on July 5th. <laughs> Did it change at all your approach the next days? And, you know, obviously in interactions that had nothing to do with the 4th of July, but did you notice that you were wary in any way? No, um, not really. You know, I do try to pay attention and notice. Before I ever open a hive up, I usually do take a moment to notice how they're doing, and I didn't do that. That's that's one of my prereqs before prerequisites before I open a hive up is take note of how they're doing. There are some times when bees don't want anyone in the hive. If the if and things that maybe some people don't know too, like if the barometric pressure is falling and there's a storm coming on, that's not a good time to open a hive up because the bees are preparing for a storm. They're doing whatever needs to be done inside to be sure that they're ready for this. So if I open a hive then, I know that they're going to come out and say, this is not a time to be bothering us. Put that lid back on and go away. So I, I pay attention to it. Now, what I noticed, Jacqueline, in, in talking with you is that you obviously have some kind of real sensitivity to the natural world. When you told the story about identifying that there were water spirits and that this was a place where water wanted to be and even that you could approach a hive and tune in and know what's needed or not needed. And I'm curious what you would say to someone listening right now who is feeling excited about cultivating more sensitivity to the natural world where they live in whatever landscape that might be, how they might go about that? Mm, learning to listen, it's the most important skill. And learning to quiet the, the you know, monkey mind chatter that goes on, that's probably the, the biggest tool, tool, I guess you'd call it a tool, is, but I think it's more a way of being than anything else that I can, um, and I invite people to just listen. That comes from putting in, like, for example, if it's going to be bees, then we call it the thousand hours. <laughs> and it I mean, isn't that the same with meditation too? You don't do it three times and go, ah, that didn't work. You do it over and over and over and you come to understand and know things and feel things that are you know, from the depths inside of us. That's how I feel with the bees and throughout my whole farm. Sometimes people ask me, they say, well, what does my hive say they want you to do or want me to do? And I think that's not what the process is. It isn't about me speaking with your hive. It, it isn't like that. I can speak with my hives, but it's more speaking with the spirit of who is present with you. If I'm with a particular hive, then all my energy and intention is directed to interacting in a peaceful way with that particular hive. If I want to know more about the bee world in general, then my questions seem to be answered from some larger uh, energy that embodies all of the bee spirit. So for each of us who have 
animals that we want to communicate more with. It is just spending time sitting and listening. I, I don't think it has to take a lot of thought process. It's more being receptive to it. Now, I, I notice, as you've mentioned a couple of times, opening a hive, I realize I've seen pictures of honeycombs and things like that, but I've never looked inside a hive. I've never had an experience like that. And I'm curious to know what that's like when you look inside a hive, what you see. Oh, my God. You asked a great question. <laughs> well, first of all, I spend time outside the hive assessing, you know, is this a good time for me to come in to do something? And it might be like to take a bar of honey or, I don't know, there's not a lot of things I go into my hives for because I am a bee-centric beekeeper, which means I ask myself first, what is this like from the bees' point of view? Well, frankly, the bees don't want us in there a whole lot. Um, and I know in conventional beekeeping, I was told in the beginning at bee school, if I wasn't in my hives every seven to ten days, then I was a lousy beekeeper. I need to be in there and checking their, assessing their hive health, and do they need this, and do they need medication, and do they need uh, something cleaned up, do they need things moved around. That isn't what the bees would have you do. So I'm more hands-off on that. I find I can learn a tremendous amount about what is happening inside the hive simply by watching outside the hive. If there's pollen coming in, well, then I know there's babies in there to feed. If there's, um, you know, there's a lot of activity at the front door where they're chasing off somebody, then I know that there's uh, stress going on somewhere. Uh, but going into the hive, let's say I get all the signals that say, yes, yes, come on in. It's really wonderful. You take the lid off and there's this smell, this scent that comes up of the propolis and the wax and the warm honey. And it just it's just this sense that it, it touches some limbic part of my brain that brings me further into this communion with them. And I always move really, really slowly. If anybody gets concerned that I'm in there, then I go twice as slow as that. And they're really quite friendly when you go in. They, oh, who are, what are you doing here today? And, you know, some of them will come up and just look right up at you. And some might crawl across my fingers. And I always try to be really careful if I'm moving anything, if I'm taking a bar out to look at something, that I'm really careful about not squishing any bees in there. That often just comes with going more slowly. I always tell them first, before I do anything, what I'm about to do. Sometimes I verbalize it. Uh, sometimes I say it right out loud. I'm coming in to see how you're doing with pollen. Is there plenty of pollen? Um, I rarely, rarely ever, ever go in the nursery because I believe the nursery is kind of like a uterus and we just don't have any real reason to be in there. You know, other than human curiosity, there's really not much I need to see in there. Um, that's kind of the things that, that I do. And I'm real slow putting things back together and real careful to put things back exactly as I found them and then closing it up again. And, oh, my goodness, you can you can tell, too, if, if there's concern, like if I'm going to pick up a certain bar and the bees change their tone where they're going, hmm, and then all of a sudden they're going, hmm, that tells me, oh, someone just got concerned that I might be doing something. I might, They might not want me there or they need me to go slower. So it is like this back and forth where I'm reading signals from them, they're reading signals from me. 
and we want it to be like a little dance that we're doing together. You know, I always want them to feel like that that I'm careful and I'm going to be cautious around them. They're not going to be harmed by be by me being there. I think that's the part they need to know. Is, you know, is there a heartfulness that you come to the hive with? And if so, you'll feel it. You come right back at you. Now, can you identify the different songs of bees the way somebody oh, might yeah. be able to identify bird songs or things like that? So you can tell what song they're singing. I mean, mm-hmm. what's what? How many songs do they do they have going? What's their repertoire? I never thought of that. But there's sounds where um, if a hive is being robbed by a strong hive who's coming in to steal all their honey, and um, there's there's a a song of defense where, you know, you'll hear the pitch go up and it'll be like, hey, somebody's trying to come in our front door and get all the guard bees down there and let's go. And, you know, it's like a, a cry to go to battle to save the hive. And, you know, I have a hard time with robbing because bees will do it to each other. A large hive will go in towards when there's a dearth of forage, which means there's not as many flowers blooming, like you get on into the fall. Um, the larger hives will go, okay, well, this hive isn't so strong, so let's go hit it and see if we can steal their honey. And it's also part of nature's way, and that's why I've learned to be more hands-off. Larger hives are the ones that are probably going to survive more easily. Ones, Maybe not larger hives, but hives that have a lot of honey put aside for themselves to get through winter. And if they challenge a hive, that hive has to come back and say, hey, no way, you're not coming in here. This is our stuff. This is our territory, and you stay out. So there's that defense song that they'll be singing, and you can tell. It's a it's a higher pitch, like a nee, I can also hear when um, when a bee has a concern about me. You know, I all of a sudden, one of them might kind of bump up against me. They have no sense of scale. A bee will bump me with her forehead on my forehead, and that means back up. You know, I mean, like I'm a thousand times bigger than she is. It doesn't mean it doesn't matter. She'll still bump me and say, "Hey, back off." And so, if I ever have a bee bump me, I back up right away. Usually, just before she does that, she'll give me a little verbal warning. She'll say, "Nee," you know, that that kind of like "nee" instead of "hmm." <laughs> I hope these sounds come out on the recording. (laughs) Now, Jacqueline, you've talked a little bit about life from the bees' point of view. And I'm curious to know, do bees, in your communications with them, have a sense that they have a purpose here? And if so, what is the purpose of life from a bee's point of view for a bee? Oh, yes, indeed they do. Um, well, one thing they understand is that they um, they protect the land. And what they do with this, like on our farm, I feel like our land is protected by bees. It's one of the things that they understand about how they work. So what they do is they take um, every hive, every time a bee flies out, they have an interaction with the sun, and the sun comes through these prismatic wings that they have, and it sets like a rainbow of colors on the ground. Um, Part of that is, how do I say this? They, each time a bee comes out and goes off to forage and comes back, it 
that particular bee lays a forage line. She lays a, a light line out there. So the hives become the centers of these protective areas. And when they do that, they're actually building like a grid that goes over all of our land um, and, and all of the larger land. You know, they can go out two miles away. So areas that have bees in it, healthy bees in it, are, are well protected. They also um, understand that they, their relationship with the plants, their communicators among the plant families, I'm, I'm really uh, amazed by this process they do where when you have, let's say you have a bunch of dandelions in your front yard, like we did when we first moved here, the bees come down and they, they take the pollen and they, they're pollinating, but they're going from one dandelion to the next to the next. And each crew that comes out to work with the flowers, they're on a specific mission. That's why pollination works, because they go from that particular, they go from a tomato blossom to a tomato blossom or an apple blossom to an apple blossom, and that pollens get, the pollens get mingled. They understand that their process when they're doing that is not just pollinating, but also, because they're going from one flower to the next, they're communicating between the flowers. So if they're, as uh, the flowers like to have certain minerals in the ground, and when a plant has a mass of flowers and it's reaching the end of its mineral range there, the, the bees are communicating that back to the flowers by going from one flower on the edge to another flower further in. And that edge flower is saying, there's a lot of that wonderful mineral over here. So you'll see over years that the flowers will actually start to move across fields. Now that could take 20 years or it could take a century for flowers to move and they'll move according to what mineral resources are there. If they start to run out on one end, then the bees will be helping them know that, that the bees, that the flowers that are over at this end don't have as much of that mineral that you like. So they'll taper off on having the, the flowers growing in that area. And I've seen in my front yard, you know, dandelions used to be all over that front yard. But as we brought in animals and we had more minerals in the ground and manures and composts and all kinds of things... I don't find the dandelions in my front yard now because the job the, the dandelions were doing, which is bringing up calcium from the deep parts of the soil and nourishing the, um, the soil, um, that's done. That job is done. So the dandelions over 15 years have moved from my front yard to my north yard where they're quite happy and they're doing a lot of their work. And then, Jacqueline, what about you? Do you have a sense somehow of your purpose being such an advocate and a translator, if you will, for people to understand bee life. What do you think is the purpose, if you will, that you've been given this particular mantle? Mm, that's a good question. I'm not quite sure on the answer of that because sometimes, well, when I first started out, I really thought it was just for my own personal development. You know, how do I become a better person? Well, I become a better person by paying more attention to the bees, for one, and trying things out. But I've noticed since I've written the book, so much of the feedback I've gotten from the book has, has told me that that book is serving a tremendous purpose for other people as well. Um, oh, I, get, I get love letters. 
from people who say their relationship with nature will never be the same again because now they understand this depthful part of nature where humans are a part of this landscape. But, you know, we're not the be-all, end-all bosses of it. We're a part of it, and we have so much to learn from all of our surroundings. So I think that's really what the book has been doing is, is helping people find a way to step into that place where this is open to, to all of us. And just one final question, Jacqueline. You know, I can imagine, of course, when people talk about their relationship with, let's say, a beloved dog, that it opens their heart so much. And here, in reading your book, Song of Increase, to feel how much your heart has opened up in relationship with bees. I don't think that's intuitively obvious. I mean, I think so many people, of course, when they see a bee, they go in the other direction. It's not oh my God, my heart exploded through a relationship with bees in my backyard. Can you just shed a little bit of light on that about just the actual heart level of transformation that has happened for you through your relationship with bees? No one was more surprised than me, first of all. <laughs> I didn't know it was going to happen like this. I, I really didn't have an intention that I would become a bee whisperer. Um, who would? Who would even think that was something available? Um, and I wonder about that kind of, how did this happen? How did I get changed like this? How did I become, I am really clear on the fact that I am a better person now than I was before I started this work with bees. How they come into me, how they open up my heart, I'm I'm not even sure how that happens exactly, but I know that just going and sitting by the hive, maybe that's my way of meditation. Um, going and sitting by the hive and being present with them, whether I'm next to the hive or whether I'm in the house and doing something different, that tenderness that I feel towards them and that they keep exert, just exemplifying to me this sweetness, this kindness, the way that they care for each other with no question about, oh, you know, is this what I want to be doing right now? Oh, I, just, I find that so amazing. I had a time um, when I was working with some bees and I was just going to move a swarm into a new home. My girlfriend brought them over and, and uh, left them off and I went to put them into the hive and it was, it was towards dusk, which is not a great time to move bees in. They get really, they orient by the sun, so they get nervous in the evening because if a bee falls to the ground and the sun isn't up, they don't know where to go and they could be dead by morning. So I was doing this and the bees were, I didn't realize it when I started, but they were in a pillowcase inside of the box. So I started to dump them into the hive and then they were tangled up in the pillowcase and by now the sun had set and and it was all, they were on the inside of the pillowcase and they were on the outside of the pillowcase. It probably seemed like a good idea to put them in a pillowcase at the moment, but trying to get them out, it was a terrible idea. So bees were everywhere and they were falling out of the hive and and then they were crawling on the floor and my, you know, I'm standing there in my sneakers and jeans and I could feel them crawling up my pants legs. <laughs> they could only get up about as far as my knees and then my jeans were a little snug above that, and I couldn't stop what I was doing. And I remember saying to them, you know, little bees, just find a place and wait where you are, and I'll just, I'll, I'll, I'll be gentle with you, and I'll save you 
it later, but I have to finish this task first. So I did. I got all the bees, as, as many as I could, inside the hive. And then, in, now it was some completely dark, I was walking down to the house really, really slowly and gently and trying not to squish any little bees in there. And I got down to the bathroom, and I closed the door, turned on the light so that all whatever bees I found would you know, be in the bathroom with me. And I really gently rolled my pants down all the way and one by one found each bee on the inside of my pants legs. And I collected them all with a feather and put them in a little jar. And and I counted 14 bees when I was doing that. And I was so proud of them. I was like, you know what? We did this. No bee was harmed. And it was a scary time for them. And, you know, probably almost as scary, not scary, but I was concerned for them. But it was just, what a sweet moment. They they listened to me telling them, you know, you stay safe and I'll be real slow and we'll get you through this. I just felt like it made me feel so happy because it made me feel like I was telling them, you too can rely on me and I will take care of you. I will always be careful of you and I will be, I will be in my heart when I'm with you. I just felt like that was... They're agreeing to that and helping me rescue them out of a dangerous situation. It was, it was such a good moment in my life. <laughs> I've been talking with Jacqueline Freeman. She's the author of a visionary new book called Song of Increase, listening to the wisdom of honeybees for kinder beekeeping and a better world. Jacqueline, thank you so much. Thank you for being on Insights at the Edge. Thank you, Tammy. A total pleasure. (laughs) Soundstrue.com. Many voices, one journey. Thanks for listening.